Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. <laughs> How are All you? Right. Episode episode two of the Two Ernest podcast. Very exciting. Yes. Yeah. Is this actually a good time during the week for a phone call for you? This is good. Okay, let's try and make this our weekly check-in so we can try and build some rhythm around this. All right. Sounds great. Well, good. So last time we were talking about uh, North Stars of communities and how to have sustainable communities. And the question that I had was, there's always this tension between me wanting to do what's best for me, me wanting to do what's best for my community, and me wanting our community to do what's best for those outside the community. And that to me is actually the hard design problem of if we're trying to build a better world, how do we balance those tensions? Mm-hmm. Uh, so are you okay with starting out kind of, one of the interesting um, things I was reading about, uh, have you heard the word uh, ultra sociality? I was reading the article that you uh, for, for me, forwarded me last week, and it mentioned that uh, that our ultra society sociality yeah it's a little hard to pronounce yeah ultra sociality like uh it's uh what we see in bees and uh ants and and in human beings um well well, technically the term that biologists use is what they call eusociality eu Mm -hmm. uh so right so there's a handful of species that have this massive social organization uh, bees, wasps, and termites, and ants. I guess, um, um, and the so the general term eusociality applies to all of us: uh, bees, ants, humans, etc. What's interesting is that uh, so the the author of the book Ultra Sociality, uh, sociality, sociality. I'm not sure which. Anyway, uh, the author of that book says, well. You know, you could consider humans eusocial like bees, ants, and termites, but that's not really a great metaphor because uh, insects, they have hard biological divisions uh, between those who reproduce, those who are warriors, those who are workers, those who are uh, in different roles. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about human sociality is that it is cultural rather than biological, right? So you know, even in a kingdom, apart from the occasional eunuch, uh, you know, the king and the peasant and the warrior uh, have the same biology, and they're all sort of self-contained genetic units. It is only through culture that we have division of resources and status and so forth. And so he thinks that's why he coined it. To, and so. And the point he makes in the book is that until around 10,000 years ago, humans were social more or less the same way that other primates were social. We lived in small groups, uh, maybe a little larger than average. Uh, But, you know, we were certainly less successful, socially speaking, than ants and termites. And then something happened 
10,000 years ago where we begin this apparently relentless march towards greater and greater levels of socialization? And that's the question he wants to answer in his book is, you know, why did that happen? And his, the discipline he's proposing for studying this question is cultural evolution, is that we evolved cultures that allowed us to scale up uh, many orders of magnitude in an evolutionary blink of the eye. And in particular, I think this is the, uh, it's a very similar problem, or maybe the same problem, is how do you get individuals to, um, uh, actually, in particular, sacrifice themselves for the sake of people who are not immediate relatives. And that is an evolutionary uh, innovation that is quite extraordinary. Um, that is the basis of society, or certainly civilization, if you want to use the term uh, distinct from societies. So anyway, that's just kind of the, the cognitive backdrop in there. Uh, in all that space, which do you have, do you find any of those particular questions important or interesting or things you want to take a stab at answering? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, first, uh, I think you should uh, look into your mic. Your, your voice is kind of cracking up a little bit. So while you do that, um, yes, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, uh, or humanity was establishing communities to be able to, you know, plant seeds and, and grow plants and, and, and all of that. And from that, you know, came the need to, uh, you know, a few uh, powerful men, you know, like kings or feudal lords, they had to raise, uh, you know, armies or people to defend them to the land, right? Uh, in, at that point, um, maybe there was some sort of loyalty to that, you know, lord, but they were all, you know, eventually they were, they also had, uh, uh, you know, became to depend on that person to, for their uh, food, their homes, and eventually, you know, they grew to be paid. So the motive, um, you know, although when they were in small groups, and, and this is my interpretation, you know, it might not be totally accurate. But when there were in small groups, you know, families, extended families, the motivation to go fight and die for people was, you know, uh, really close to uh, to them. You know, they were emotionally tied to them, uh, you know, culturally, and, and, you know, they have familial ties. Now we come to, uh, you know, current day, you know, we still have armies, we still have wars. And although people talk about patriotism and, and and things like that you know that's also true but the connection is more uh, ideological you know like uh, uh, you know I joined the army um, and I serve you know I, I believe in, in the country and and, uh, and and everything but you know why did I really join I joined to you know be able to study pursue my studies you know would have joined if, if I didn't get paid. I highly doubt that. So there was, uh, even though I have allegiance to the country, you know, there's other motivations that, that you know, uh, make me uh, 
gives my life. But also, and more importantly, is that when you are in an army, your first allegiance is, at least in the modern take on, on that, your first allegiance is to your fellow soldiers. So, uh, you know, I can tell you that, you know, when you're, even though I didn't go to war, but you can feel that, you know, in basis anyway, you are, you think of the outside as, you know, the civilians, the, uh, as you actually, we also call it the world. When I'm back in the world, I will do this and that. But while you're in your, uh, with your fellow soldiers, that's your community, that's your family. And that's who you give your life to, you know. Uh, so, the, although you are part of a greater society, you almost always you all you deal with a small community or group to which you give your uh, greatest loyalty, and and that's what unites you. Uh, uh, the unity of purpose and and depending on each other, that's what unites you and that's what makes you do things that you would think uh, you would think impossible to do. For example, you know, throwing yourself on top of a grenade so that your uh, the rest of your squad survives, things like that. Right. So but well, you know, it's probably worth discussing uh two different concepts of self interest or mm-hmm. loyalty. Because certainly soldiers are intensely loyal to their buddies, and that is the backbone, and that's why we have platoons of around six people or squads. You know, there's certain squad sizes that seem to be very intrinsic to human development or the human mm-hmm. brain, right? Is that your, your, your tight buddies of like no more than six, your platoons of around 12, uh, companies or centuries of around 100, mm-hmm. right? But what's interesting is that... Um, you know, in the vast majority of cases, while there's this intense bond of the thing, it doesn't become, um, I mean, you do occasionally hear about rogue groups where they all go off and they just, you know, loot a place or whatever. But certainly in modern armies, the vast majority of it is these, these groups also follow orders from people they haven't met uh, that have a very good chance of killing them all. Right, and that's the extraordinary thing, is not that people form these intense bonds, but that those intense bonds are in the service of a larger purpose that could very well get them killed. And, you know, the, um, and that is an extraordinary thing is that, uh, you know, as you mentioned, like soldiers will often despise and mock the civilians and yet still give their lives for them. Or at least some idea in their heads that is correlated with, hopefully the survival of the larger group. And so, and, and that's a, uh, it's just a fascinating question of how that developed. And you're right. It started out where yeah, I think the, the, the usual forming is the first we were hunter gatherer tribes where everyone was really just a clan uh, on the order of tens of people. And then when we had farming, then you started having not just defending your people, but defending your land. And you started having villages of you know, hundreds of people uh, who had like a shared ecosystem that they were defending. And then, uh, you know, the story that uh, the author tells in Ultra Society is actually you started then having raiding. Um, and people said, well, you know, uh, and interestingly, there were experiments with egalitarian societies where you had very large scale villages of thousands of people. 
Um, and you could see based on the architecture that it was very egalitarian. They were all, it was like a circular hub and each, uh, you know, section had its own chieftain and they were all equal and so forth. And that worked for a short period of time, but got obliterated by kingship. Uh, most likely because when you have a large group of egalitarian people uh, arguing with each other, it's really hard to take decisive action in a crisis. And that mm -hmm. led to warlords and then kings and chieftains and emperors and, and on up the chain of uh, scale. And, you know, it's easy to look back from our perspective at how barbaric those people were. Um, but on the other hand, it's a facet, even, you know, just taking a truly clinical approach, uh, his basic thesis in Ulster Society, it is, is actually conflict and competition and warfare that uh, provoked the development of higher levels of complex social organization. And the interesting, and then the, the, the interesting question was, I don't know if he talks about that in the book, but over the last, you know, Prior to, say, World War I, war was the primary means by which nations increased their glory. And you can look at that as a good or a bad thing, but that was the kind of the currency that people tended to focus on and why they went to war is for honor and glory and things like that. Uh, at least that was uh, a big part of it and how much that was real or imagined is an interesting question, but certainly it inspired you know, hundreds of thousands of young men to volunteer to die uh, for the sake of their, their tribe. And then, you know, after World War II, something unusual happened in that nations started viewing their glory in terms of their economic output rather than the amount of land. And, you know, and we can certainly spend... Uh, enormous amounts of time justly cataloging all the evils of capitalism. But one fascinating consequence is that young men now see uh, making a job, getting a job and making money as an equal, if not greater way to increase the glory of your tribe than military service. And that's, a, that's, a, that's I think, a, a fascinating cultural development, which overall I think is better than killing and being killed, both in terms of the psychological harm it causes people and the overall benefit to the global population, although it is not without its own scars and shames and horrors. But I think the, the, the hard question we have to answer is that if you accept this premise that, okay, for, you know, several thousand years, and we can sort of debate any of the precepts, you know, the, the reality of war was a forcing function for the development of ever more complex societies. And for the last 75 years, capitalism has been the forcing function for ever greater levels of complex social interactions. I think that's a fair point to make if we want to get rid of war. First of all, if we want to get rid of capitalism, I would not want to go back to war. I think we can agree on that, right? Yes. Okay, good. Right. So then the question is then, 
is it possible to come up with a better uh, forcing function for more interdependent sociality than capitalism? Or do you think you can sidestep the problem by being clever? Ah, I think it's a, uh, well, we have to be clever, but we also have to have a, a purpose. Um, people, uh, futurists talk a lot about um, uh, post-scarcity society. And mm -hmm. that, yeah, that is, uh, you know, that's a society where, you know, you can have anything you want. The technology is, is super advanced and you, you don't have to work if you don't want to work because everything is available to you. So what motivates you in that kind of society? Um, well, we can think about, you know. Well, it depends on how you define, well, so first of all, I think it's, it's, it's probably worth defining what things you mean. Because if people want power over other people, presumably not everyone can have that. I mean, that's just a, an oxymoron, right? <laughs> Precisely mean material scarcity. Yes, yes, material scarcity. Correct. Yeah. Or, or let's be more precise. Let's call it commodity scarcity. Right, because like you know, a signed autograph, uh, you know, the original signed version of the Declaration of Independence, it's a material object, but it's sort of artificially scarce because it's a unique, rare, one-of-a-kind thing. Not mm -hmm. everyone can have unique, rare, one-of-a-kind thing. But the idea is that commodities like basic, you know, food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, things like yeah. that. Yeah, in, in my okay. opinion, those are not even commodities because, you know, those are human necessities that, yeah, they have to be met, right? And you also, in this type of society, you cannot trade that, you know. You cannot say, hey, I give you my home if you give me something because people have everything already. You know, all those basic needs are met. You, you can have any type of food that you want, uh, all that. So, you know. So, you so, 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 so let's be very precise here then. So, <laughs> so one definition of post-scarcity or one level, let's call it. Um, so but this is where it gets really dicey. What do you mean by basic needs? Does it just uh, mean that you don't starve or freeze to death? Uh, Yes, uh, we can, you know, just to, to, to grab some, we can use the seven, uh, that pyramid of needs. You know, we can start with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can talk about the, the most basic needs. Is shelter, food, clothing, uh, a social group, um, those things that are basic for you to, like, not go crazy. Then you have the 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 top level is, I think, is the transcendence, where you are your your being is it, it, you get to a higher level people talk about a higher level but look, i can't even uh know what it is or imagine but it's it's like a level where let's say like buddha or gandhi that kind of that level of transcendence people call it we can use transcendence for that right where the so what's funny of course is that the people at the transcendence level often voluntarily give up social belonging and food and basically clothing <laughs> in pursuit of transcendence. So yeah. it, it gets a little weird. 
uh, at the other end. But so let's 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 use the idea of basic needs. So what was interesting to me is that you placed belonging in a social group as a core human need, which I tend to agree with, mm-hmm. by the way. But that is actually not necessarily common in a lot of Western analyses, right? Which has this vision of the lone libertarian pioneer, you know, fighting nature on his own. And I think, but I think you're right, is that most people do go crazy uh, if they are not part of a social group. The problem is once you have a social group, things get weird. Because once you have a social group, then you, I don't think you can avoid the question of status in the group, um, which is, on one hand, tied to distribution of resources within the group uh, in both directions, right? Is that people who ha- tend to have more of whatever skills or attributes or resources are valued by the group tend to have higher status, which is a... Um, which is almost by design, right? So the, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, throughout history, like we talk about warfare and economics, that societies were either evolved or designed, the ones that survived built status games around things that the community as a whole needed, right? That's why most societies, most of the time, had a huge status game around being a warrior, because that encouraged people to, A, become warriors and sacrifice themselves, but, two, develop the skills and attributes that will allow them to be successful as warriors before they needed to be warriors, right? A lot of sport is a vestigial form of that. Uh, And, you know, societies that were successful in getting their young men to train for combat meant that when they ran into conflict with another tribe, they were ready. And that's why, as you know, the military is full of all sorts of, to an outsider, seemingly bizarre and cruel traditions. But part of that was to enforce this very rigorous status game so that when the crisis came, people were ready for it. Mm-hmm. And once you have a status game, then there's this weird dynamic that people will rationally and voluntarily uh, deprive themselves of certain quote-unquote basic needs in order to gain more status. And, uh, or at least limit it, right? Because, in fact, people do. Um, You know, uh, in certain contexts, you had this culture of tribute where the poor would give their resources to the king to earn the favor of the king because the favor of the king was more important long-term than the short-term loss of resources. And uh, it's it's an ugly problem, right? Because the question is, how do you actually maintain community cohesion without status gains? And, you know, our, you know, at one point you talked about, like, a future world where we're all living in spaceships flung out to the far corners of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, one solution one could imagine is what's called the atomization of the human race, is that we all devolve down to societies of less than 100 people or, you know, Dunbar's number, village size. And, mm-hmm. you know, we can all be self-contained. And uh, the first problem you run into is... Uh, 
endogenous breeding. And I suppose if you go to cloning or synthetic reproduction, you get around that. But I think that's going to be one of the last things the human race is going to want to give up. And so if you assume that the incest taboo preserves, uh, you'll still have a world where, you know, tribes will want to meet occasionally to intermarry. And so you saw this problem that you do have intergroup status gains, right? Where even if, you know, my tribe of 100 manages their own affairs, you know, I want to play a status game where I can meet, you know, tribes that have a better reputation, you know, treat their wives better or whatever. And then you have a new higher level status game. So uh, the I think the issue is, uh, the, the, you know, we have different status games. So mm-hmm. for each game, there's uh, uh, something like you were just saying, uh, getting a, a, a better partner, better wife, better husband. Um, what it, you know, in a group of scientists, um, and you know, I wasn't present for that, but you know, let's say the group of scientists in which uh, Einstein circulated. Uh, you know, all of them were, you know, great scientists, great researchers. Um, I don't know if they viewed him as the prime example of their set. I think a lot of them had, you know, very similar uh, accomplishments. Um, his, of course, is, is a little higher. Um, but I, um, in in the whole, they were look, they were go, uh, pursuing one goal or, or, you know, one focus goal, which is the advancement of science. Okay, understanding our world and how, uh, you know, why the planets circle around, um, how, uh, you know, the light photons travel, um, you know, dealing with space and time or, or, or well, at first it was separate things and I then say, hey, no, it's, it's, it's one thing. Um, so the what unites them and that style of game is, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it was a game, really. Uh, I'm not sure whether Einstein did his thing just to be the the premier scientist. I think, I I I think it was like his his uh, pursuit of of knowledge by thinking, um, and and respect. I think it was respect. I I what I'm not I'm not in his mind, so I don't know exactly why he did what he did. But I think he was motivated. By advancement, let's uh, by finding the truth. And in in this, he's a, a interesting case because, well, for me anyway, personally, because he believed in God, right? He was a, a very, uh, you know, a believer in 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 a God, in a higher power. Right. You mentioned or to be fair, in, more of a deistic God, but yes. Yes. Uh, whereas other scientists, they they don't they. If I cannot see it and I cannot, uh, um, you know, put it in the lab, I, I, I will not believe in that. But yet, yet they had a, a commonality of goal or purpose, and that unites them. And although you know some might be atheists and some not, uh, the advancement of each individual within the group, it uh, it's seen as advancing the group. 
So Einstein well, came up with that. So, yeah, so, so it's interesting. The, the, I think the, the point I would make, though, is that you're writing history a bit from backwards. Because the way it actually worked out is that Newton created the field of science, right, with a paradigm. Let's use that word now. And you feel with Thomas Kuhn, the structure of scientific revolution? You've heard the word paradigm before, right? Yeah, yeah. Are you familiar with Thomas Kuhn and the original work, The Structure of Scientific Revolution? Thomas Kuhn? No, I cannot say that. No, okay, so he's the one who coined the term, and he's where why we all use this word today. And uh, it's actually really relevant to this idea of status games. So Thomas Kuhn said, you know, we used to have this idea that science was this orderly progress in, of accumulating new facts and better theories, superseding old theories. Um, but that's not actually true. What happens is there's two distinct types of innovation, very similar to sustaining versus disruptive innovation. Normal science is where you have a paradigm. You know, Newton's laws, F equals MA, right? That, you know, was a thunderstroke that created modern science, calculus, physics, optics, electromagnetism, you know, almost on a whole cloth. And it was amazing. And so people played the Newtonian game for a long time. And what's interesting is there is both the practice of Newtonian physics and let's call it the dream of Newtonian physics. So the dream of Newtonian physics was to explain everything, but the practice was to explain it in terms of Newton's laws. And what happened is, is there were anomalies that would accumulate, like the photoelectric effect or the ultraviolet catastrophe that could not be explained by Newton's laws, but people who are committed to playing the game kept trying, hoping if we could just be more clever or figure it out. Einstein, interestingly enough, was not part of that status game. He was not a researcher at a university. He was a clerk at a patent office, right? And he, outside that game, said, well, I like the dream. I don't like the game. And I want to create a better one. And he himself wasn't entirely happy with the result he came up with, you know, the famous thing is that he can't believe that God plays dice with the universe, uh, even though that was a natural consequence or implication of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. But the, and so what happened was, is he uh, shared the dream, but disagreed with the game and ended up rewriting the rules of the game. And, you know, afterwards, the establishment uh, lionize him and not just outside, but it, it, you know, it, there's a very good case to be made that the reason Einstein came up with it when many other people who are probably as brilliant as he was didn't is because he was not part of the status game. Is that you know, when there is this chasm between an existing status game and a new one, this is what Kuhn calls revolutionary science, mm. or we call disruptive innovation. You have a different measure of performance, and when you're part of a status game you must implicitly in the depths of your bones believe in the status game the group is playing to rise to the top of it. And then to question it uh, is to actually lose status. And this is, tends to be where most uh, systems fail. And what's fascinating looking at the American experiment is right there was the dream of all men are created equal. There was a practice of white male property owners are created equal. And that was the implicit status game that they all played. And you know, it started crumbling under Jackson and then Jacksonian democracy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and we're dealing now with that. But this has always been the problem is that if you want to be true to the dream, 
you at some point have to sacrifice your status gain. And that requires someone uh, on the margins, uh, typically, who has just enough status that they can survive rejecting the game, but not so much that they um, um, can't imagine doing without it. And this is the, um, and this is where, you know, even in a post-scarcity, even a world of, I mean, let's face it, for the most part, we are effectively in a world of near uh, total abundance of basic needs, right? But yet, uh, for some reason, we have status, in the sense that there is no absolute shortage of food, no absolute shortage of medicine. But for some reason, our society is organized according to status games, where some people have way more than they will ever need, and other people, you know, I mean, this is playing out in horrific detail in India, where, you know, they are trying to social distance and do lockdowns to spread this COVID. Meanwhile, there are, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people who are day laborers, who live from one day to the next, who have no food resources or reserves whatsoever. And, you know, the uh, sane, wise, rational policy of social distancing is, you know, could very easily kill more people due to starvation than would have died to COVID-19. And, you know, it's a really hard question of like, is this wise? Is this foolish? Is it cruel? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Like, I don't know. And I'm hesitant to judge because, you know, I can't even imagine the trade-offs on either side. Um, but the reality is, is that in times of crisis, trade-offs have to be made. That's why it's a crisis, right? If there was no trade-off, if everything was easy. And the point is that and even if we just say health, well, health is not necessarily a simple binary thing, right? Is it okay to go through some privation now that will make you stronger later or that will give you a risk of having a bad outcome down the road? And, you know, to be rich is to say, well, I can afford to create additional buffers against increasingly unlikely threats, right? Uh, you know, Apple's famous for its, you know, multi-billion dollar war chest, which people, you know, uh, active shareholders complain bitterly for years how Apple was just hoarding cash. Suddenly, Apple's looking like a genius for hoarding cash, right? Mm -hmm. Which means that they can do things like pay their contractors and, you know, other people who are hourly wagers who are not showing up for work and you know that's allowing them to be generous at a time when other people are being driven by scarcity and it's easy to imagine a world where there's no immediate lack of scarcity it's quite difficult to imagine a world where there never will be um any scarcity of anything um especially if people Still consume resources in the pursuit of status gains. Mm. Well, uh, I disagree with you, with that a little bit. I, you know, um, uh, for the foreseeable future, yes, I think that 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 would be the. the but but even if you imagine a world of you know transmutation, where every element, every atom, every mineral can be produced, you know, essentially for free. Mm. Um, 
right? The question is, is that, you know, some people will want to live on Earth, mm-hmm. right? Assuming we haven't totally destroyed it. And there's status associated with that. And there's a resource cost to that. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, as I see it, you know, when I think about the future, I always think, well, home is not going to be just Earth. It's going to be, a, a, you know. But, but, Earth, 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 Earth. Earth. but, there, but there will Earth. be some stat, but, but you're saying, let's just say we're going to get, every, unless we're going to force everyone to live in identical spaceships, right? Then there will still be people who choose to live differently, right? Yes, yes, of course, yes. And some, and some of those choices will require more resource consumption than others. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the answer is that, you know, either uh, you allow people to play status games, which means there's going to be differential consumption of resources, and, um, or you have some overwhelming force that prevents people from playing status games. Exactly. You have to, like, elevate the game. Like, right now, the, you know, let's talk purely in um, uh, space or, or the area of the, your, home, your homestead, right? Right now, our homestead mm-hmm. is Earth. So the status game is, you know, it, it, it depends on, you know, living on Earth, you know, dealing with oil, dealing with solar power, whatever. If we elevate that into living, you know, in uh, Venus, Mars, and Earth, then you have a bigger game. You know, you you have to right. So you make the game larger, right? But don't forget that like terraforming Earth and you know Mars and Venus costs a huge amount of resources, <laughs> right? So there's a status game to be played in the crazy stuff. But let's you know, let me give me your far future limit. You know no. what? I mean, you know where the so the question is, but the point is that even in that scenario, even if you assume the human race is going to expand across multiple galaxies. Mm-hmm. You still have this tension. Well, there's existing scenarios here that are already settled, or there's an unbounded frontier. And, you know, there's still a question of, you know, could we use those resources to make the existing homestead more comfortable? Or do we use it to send people off into other homestead new areas? Mm-hmm. And who gets sent out? The unwanted? The rich? Right. Well, I mean, it, can you imagine a world without any frontiers? Without any what? Without any frontiers? Any frontiers? Um, uh, uh, well, right now, for, well, yes. Uh, you think we're going to say, okay, we, sorry? Yeah, let's call the frontiers right now, let's say it is uh, the solar system. Not just Earth, but the solar system. Sure. That, okay. is, that is huge, okay. even though the solar system within the galaxy is like nothing. But if sure. we think of but, but, right? Okay, because as, you're, as, as, as the, so the current frontier is the solar system, mm-hmm. and then what? Do you think that that's going to be it for the rest of eternity? Humanity will be no, no, the no. Solar system? No, no, it's not going to be that. But it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, I think you're familiar with the um, what is it, the scale of uh, Carl Sagan came up with it or somebody else that um, how a, a, a society or or beings how uh, how can they take advantage of the energy of their of, of the energy like right now um, humanity is almost in, in a point you know number one scale when it comes to 
because we can use the all the energy that is available in the earth. So we're not there yet. We're like at 0.65 or something like this. I forgot the name of this. I mean, it's at 0.65%? Yeah, no, it's, no, it's like if you're at one, you can use all the energy that the earth receives and, and do, do stuff. No, son, right, yeah, but the thing is because we have nuclear and fossil fuels, it doesn't even need to be one long term. Yeah. But regardless, you know, yeah. But the point is, is that, I mean, if that's your constraint, that's, so, uh, keep going where you're going with this, because I think I would. Okay, uh, so, if you're at two, you can gather all the energy of the sun and, and, and do things with that, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, travel, uh, you know, power, uh, power, in, you know, hugely powered for computers, all, you know, all, all of that, all, things like that. And then the next, mm -hmm. the next number is three in which you can uh, use all the energy of an entire galaxy. So just in those things, that those are humongous amounts of energy that uh, 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 a set of human beings, a, a set of beings can, uh, can do stuff with that. Uh, you know, after that, what? Multiple galaxies. And, right, but the, point is, is that, so the question is, is that, I'm still not sure what your point is, is your point that, well, if we had all that energy, then all of our problems would go away? No, no. My point is that there shouldn't be any upper limit. Like, uh, well, at right. least not. Okay, fine. But, fine. but the, the, the point is, is that it's not at any point in time, there is always a current limit. That is correct, yes. Right. Right. Now and there's always a trade off between uh, investing in the way things are and trying to extend that limit, right? But the point is, is that so even if you ha even if I grant you all that, um, it's not clear that that uh, actually is that you know uh, it doesn't seem like it really changes anything. It feels like you know the odds are if that world were to happen, we would have all the same problems we have today about distribution, status, marginalization, etc. So just having more resources is almost beside the point. Yes. You, we have to have a, a, and my main point is, we have to return to values. You know, as, uh, we, as an individual, you have to think of, about what is your purpose? What do you want to do with your life or right? Do you want to just be famous, be rich, or do you want to be uh, help in some kind, in some way? Uh, well, yeah, but, but even that is not a sufficient criteria. Like Marx, you know, Mm -hmm. Great man, cared deeply about the plight of the poor. Having good intentions uh, does not necessarily good, guarantee good outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right? That's, and yeah. so, right. So, so, but like, this is like, this is the hard problem. And this is why, in some ways, here's, here's probably a more interesting way and a good way to wrap this up is that actually having a post scarcity society doesn't actually solve every, anything because. At any given point in time, resources are finite, and if you have a status game that involves collecting stuff, there's always going to be relative disadvantage, which is always going to be less than perfectly done, which will always create resentment and frustration. Mm -hmm. um, and the more interesting question, I think, and maybe we'll leave this as a question for next time, is having a post-scarcity mindset. And the mm -hmm. mindset is that Whatever situation we are in now, 
there's always a better future where a there's more abundance for everyone and at the same time it's better for me to pursue that so the the the, the conclusion i would get is that well if you want to break this uh logjam of this conflict between the self and the community and the outer community is that the value we have to have an abundance mindset and a status game that rewards creating abundance for others and that is a really uh hard problem but it's an interesting one because that feels tractable right how do we create a status game where members of society gain status by increasing the resources available for others, including the ability to gain status, right? If you could do that, then you could square the circle and allow for individual initiative and creativity, but yet, at least in the limits, ensure it's aligned with both the flourishing of my community and the flourishing of those communities outside. And mm -hmm. it's worth saying, at its best, which is rare, but it's still true, capitalism has done exactly that. It created a non-zero-sum game where people believed that they would gain wealth and power by giving other people the tools of production that would enable them to create more resources and gain their own wealth and power. Now, the intent, I don't know how often it was there, the practice, it was rarely there, and yet it did actually happen in an extraordinary way over the last 75 years. And, you know, I think it's, it's important to give the devil his due. Yeah. And that yeah. capitalism from warfare exchanged a zero-sum game for a non-zero-sum game. And like I said, I'm totally fine with replacing capitalism. I just want to make sure we don't go back to warfare. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. All right. I think that's a good note to end on. Let's pick it up next Thursday. Okay. All right. Thanks, Ernest. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Ernest. Thank you. Talk to you, Leona, as well. Bye.